Hello, my name is Michelle Yonachan, the wandering book collector, and this is my podcast, conversations with writers exploring what's informed their books and their lives around themes of movement, memory, sense of place, borders, identity, belonging, and home. The Wandering Book Collector podcast is supported by Abercrombie & Kent. I'm joined by the writer Anthony Satin, whose latest book has just been published, Nomads, The Wanderers Who Shaped Our World. It documents the history of people who've lived their lives on the move, beyond walls and beyond borders, exploring how and how much nomads have contributed to human progress and development. Anthony's previous books include The Gates of Africa, Searching for Timbuktu, also Lifting the Veil, Two Centuries of Travellers, Traders and Tourists in Egypt. There's A Winter on the Nile and The Pharaoh's Shadow and Young Lawrence on T.E. Lawrence or Lawrence of Arabia. Anthony, welcome to The Wandering Book Collector. Thank you, Michelle. Happy to be here. So I feel like my podcast was made for your book. Are we wired? <laughs> I do, um, even just on the title. Um, are we wired, do you think, Anthony, to settle or to wander? And where do you sit in that spectrum? Oh, we're absolutely, definitely still wired to move. I mean, we 12,000 years ago, all of us lived a life completely, you know, obviously on the move all the time. We were hunters and gatherers. And uh, 12,000 years in human evolution is yesterday. So um, the changes, the physical change was much easier to make than the, the mental, psychological change, um, physical change. You just have to go through a few thousand years of building, you know, villages and then well, huts and then cities. And now the way we live, you know, more than 50% of all humans living in urban environments. But the mental changes are much, much slower. And um, I write a little bit about this in, in, in the book Nomads because there's been some really interesting work done on this by uh, people at Northwestern University in the States um, who identified a gene or a genetic variant um, that they found in successful nomads in East Africa. Um, and they also found that same variant in children who are diagnosed with learning disorder in the States, attention deficit and that sort of thing. And the suggestion is that, or the implication is, that actually those children are not, uh, they're not backward, they're not struggling, whatever, that was, they're not, there's nothing uh, deficient about them. The problem they have is they're in the wrong place because they're simply not wired to sit in, in a room with four walls and answer a question like one plus one equals two, because it could also equal, well, four halves or eight quarters or and a lot of our education is is not is not uh, nomadic in thinking. It's absolutely straightforward and straight down the line, which is not the nomadic way. So yeah, to to cut a long answer short, many of us are still wired to roam. And the second part to that question was where you sit in that spectrum practically today. Well, if you had a if you had a camera on me, you'd realize how many things there are around me in this room. <laughs> One of the rules of of uh, nomadic life is that you must be able to pack things up quickly and move on. And um, although in you know in spirit, I'm I'm definitely a nomad, and I spend half of every year on the move and have done for as long as I can remember. Um, I definitely have a home, and I have a lot of things in it. And they do weigh me down. I'm trying to get rid of lots of them and live more lightly. But I think um, I think I'm a homeboy in the end. <laughs> in a way, I think you've been researching this book for 
for much of your life, inadvertently or otherwise. Yet you've given much of your time to writing on Egypt, and which in this book you call an insular nation. How was it to flip from writing about Egyptians living on the Nile to covering the world and a very different world outlook? Oh, I, I loved every almost every every bit of writing this book nomads i as you say i've been it's sort of been in the back of my head forever when when i was a well, after i left school as a late teenager i went traveling i ended up in in the middle east and therefore i met uh, nomads came into contact with nomads for the first time and i was thinking about this while i was writing this book because i then went when when you live in in the middle east um you know in my early 30s i settled in in cairo for a while, and and then nomads are part of your everyday. I mean, they're just over there, just in the desert. Um, you know, they are if you live in anywhere in in that region, as, as in many regions in the world. And then you go back to Northern Europe, and it they're just not part of the narrative at all. And I point out in the book that in 17, 1750s, 60s, when Dr. Johnson was creating the first English dictionary, the word nomad didn't get in it because nobody used it. It was entirely irrelevant. And there's still a sense of nomads being sort of entirely irrelevant to people's everyday life, it's, for instance, in London, except they're not. And that was the point of writing this book. And I think that, um, you know, it's, it was easy to, I mean, I was so surprised that, that, that nomads are part of everyday life. And I, that wasn't part of what I had been taught when I was at school. I studied history to 18 and which which his, which uh, nomads make it into our history books? It's Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, Tamerlane, and they're all down there as bloodthirsty killers. There's nothing to do with the nomadic contribution. And um, so, what, one of the great joys of doing this book was was going down that line and actually thinking, well, that's not that's not true. So, in a way, what was left out of our history, and why was it left out of our history? Are you trying in part to right a wrong that nomads have been overlooked because they didn't really leave behind libraries or, or monuments? No, there's a great, there's a great quote from an uh, uh, Oxford and Princeton historian that uh, history is a path picked through ruins. And if you picture that, you know, a, a you know a track. I mean, I've I, when just now I have a place called Hippo in Al, in Algeria where. St. Augustine taught, um, and it's a beautiful place, you know, ruined ruined city, lots of things growing, greenery growing through it and around it, and um, in the distance, the sea. But if you're a nomad, the only role you have in that vision is of the creator of ruins, somebody who destroys, um, because you don't build monuments, um, and you, you preferably you leave no trace at all as you move on, and you don't leave libraries, and therefore, you don't leave any written accounts of your of your achievements, and so, which is how how we've got to this stage with most of our histories that there are no nomads in them. But that's not that's not true. So it, it wasn't so much as um, wanting to correct a wrong. I mean, this is this is such a huge topic, and I started it started out as a small idea, and over the years, and it's been many many years that I've been thinking about it, and eight years that I was actually actively working on it. It 
it turned into a big book. And my my publisher, when I said I was going to write it, sort of looked anxiously and said, how many, how many inches is this going to be? And, you know, sort of imagining it was going to be a doorstop volume. And I said, no, no, I don't want, it's not the Oxford history of nomads. It's it's my my view. I just want to let some light in on this dark side of our history because it, that this is completely the shadow side of the stories that we're told. It's the flip side, but it's also a companion side. And it's not one of the points I wanted to make was it's not either or. I mean, you don't have to say you know um, that that everything that nomads have done is brilliant, and you also don't have to say that everything nomads has done is terrible. It's the, the relationship between the nomadic and settled, between the mobile and the settled, for most of, of history has been very complementary and one of mutual dependence. And that was what the point I wanted to get across. Because it was this is also a part of my um Brexit protest, if you like. It's <laughs> it's part of my uh, somebody called somebody called it an ode to mobility, and I just wanted to, you know, I, the more I, I work, began working on this, the more I thought it's so obvious that all of the best things in in human progress have come about through open borders, freedom of movement, freedom of conscience, and you know, free exchange of ideas. This this seems to me to be the world that we should all be trying to move towards, and yet. At the moment, we're not. Um, more and more barriers are going up. The former US president being being one, wanting to build that ridiculous wall the whole way across the southern United States. And so this was a also um, in its conception, a, a reaction to that, you know, to being finding myself in a world that I hadn't expected. When I think about you researching this, as you point out very rightly, the stories of the nomads have more often than not been told by outsiders. And given that, how limiting was your ability to research this book? Oh, it's extremely difficult to write about nomads. And, and you know, I, there never could be a definitive, um, you know, Oxford history of nomadism because most, most of their stories, most of their achievements, most of their sayings, most of their, their ways of life, have, have certainly, you know, those who have passed on are not accessible to us because the in central tenet of, of most nomadic life has been um, communal gatherings and the telling of stories around a campfire or whatever. And those stories are passed on from person to person. And sometimes they're in massively long narrative cycles. And we did all have this ability to remember massively long narrative cycles before the book came along. Um, you know, before the before the Quran was written down, I point out in Nomads, you know, the, the Quran was given to the prophet Muhammad, uh, and he remembered it the entire in its entirety. Uh, the Homeric stories, the, the Iliad and the Odyssey were not written down initially, they were they were narrative cycles that were passed on from person to person. And um, we've we've lost that ability um, to do it. But unfortunately, we've also lost an awful lot of the stories that were told and not put down. So in order to research a book like this, I have had to um, do an awful lot of digging around among first-hand witnesses. So, for instance, for Attila the Hun, there's a there's this great Roman um, ambassador called Priscus who's sent to negotiate, uh, and so he he's a first-hand witness of of Attila who very quickly points out that he's not a bloodthirsty killer. He's actually a, 
a family man. You know, he's sitting there with his sons who are sort of hugging him. He's, you know, he's a humble man. All his guests eat, eat off gold plates and have fancy food, but he's eating plain grilled meat on a wooden bowl. You know, he doesn't dress in fine silks, but all the people around him do. So I can, I, you know, there's no reason why for Priscus to tell us that sort of story. Um, it's not in his mission. It's, it wasn't his official report, and it's not part of his inbuilt bias about about a nomads. And so I can use that. But for instance, there's a, there are other Roman historians who tell us about nomads, but they're so completely biased, and they talk about how you know they're stunted and ugly, and you know, and they have short legs because they're always riding horses, and you know, and all and and they smell, and they and they don't eat vegetables, and you know, they wear leather, and it's all this sort of the prejudice of the settled sort of echoes down through the ages. And so in order to write this, you have to sort of work out who it is who's telling you the story about, about the nomads and what it is that they might have brought to it. You have the scribes that, of course, detail the nomads as ugly and short-legged, but you also have those like Marco Polo who have a penchant for exaggerating in the other direction. I wanted to ask you how your book would have been different if you had had, for example, the diaries of Genghis Khan or Timberlane? Ah, uh, well, yeah, maybe it would have been a completely different book. I mean, there's, there is a, there's quite a lot of assumption going on in this. And I, you know, would it have been a different book? Yes, it would be a completely different book. And maybe that I'd discover things, uh, you know, I played up, I have written against our prejudices towards nomads. And some people have pointed out that it's a little bit too glossy. Of you, and I, I don't think so. I, I mean, for instance, I don't want to be an apologist for the millions of people who were killed by the monk, monk either by either by Genghis Khan or by um, Timur or their their descendants. But um, that was warfare at that time. You know, if you did a head count of the people slaughtered by crusaders, including Christians, it, it it's you know it's it's up there in the same same bracket um, and every other force at that time it was a much more savage period um and but and yet there's something because they are the barbarians because they live a different life because they're not the kingdom next door but they are this mobile other people who live in a completely different way who we feel very anxious about because they seem to be against our values then all the prejudices sort of mount up and i was trying to write against that um and probably if I'd had uh, Timur's first-hand diary, I guess it might have been a <laughs> Some things I might have had to write slightly differently, maybe, but who knows? I wonder if we could radically change and go back to, for example, the way Genghis Khan believed that his empire flourished because of open borders, as you say, and freedom of conscience. And But given the direction that humanity's been taking in, in very, very recent history, could that circle of redistribution that that brings happiness, I think that's how you put it in your book, by maintaining social order and repairing social disorders, could that be something that we could recalibrate for and, and relearn? Yes, I do think we can, but I think we also have to, and the imperative is what will move us towards it. I mean, the climate breakdown, whether you think it's human in human made or human accelerated or whether you think the whole thing is is a complete 
hoax. One way or another, it is changing our lives and it will make us uh, more dependent on one of the absolutely key um, nomadic tenets, and that is to recognize our place in, in the natural world and our absolute dependence on everything else that's on the planet. And out of that, inevitably, must come a, a different way of being, a different way of living. I mean, it sounds sort of rather preachy, but I, I, you know, I do think we are going there rather, rather quickly, um, and certainly in, in my lifetime. And then if we don't, we will fail. Is that the idea? I know Ibn Khaldun put that forward. You know, the great Arab sociologist, you know, said that and empires rise and fall. You know, there have been great examples of indigenous cultures who are nomadic surviving, albeit with great efforts of the settle to try and exterminate them, but they've still been sustained. There are two points. There, there, I've got two, two responses to that. The first is that same historian who said that, who described history as a past picked through ruins, also points out that the most successful um, human culture, human civilization, is the hunter-gatherer. Everything else has come and gone. The Egyptians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the, the British Empire rise and fall. But there are still hunter-gatherers in the world doing exactly what they have always done. They have persisted. And uh, I'm not suggesting we're all going to end up being hunter-gatherers again. I don't think that's feasible with the number of people we have on the planet. I mean, you can't have more than, I think, it's about eight humans on a, on a square mile. So, you know, we can't do that. Um, but the other point about Ibn Khaldun, this, this wonderful uh, 14th century North African scholar who, who really sort of maps out uh, a, a, effectively a history of humanity up to his time by looking at the rise and fall of empires. The, 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 and he rightly points out the circularity of all these things. You know, the empires rise, but they, are, they will in, in their rise as the seed of their fall. And we, we see this with... Um, with corporations in our own time, you know, that everything, every corporation has to keep on growing in order to, to justify itself, in order to function. And in that need to grow is, is the seed of its destruction. Eventually they become too big and they fall apart. Um, you, you know, we've seen that so often in our, in our own time. But the really important thing about, and I think, yeah, the really important lesson from Ibn Khaldun is that he teaches us his worldview is that things do not necessarily improve. We live in a, in a time when we believe in the rise of, of mankind, the, you know, the ascent of man, and particularly in the last 50 years, the rise of Western man or woman, you know, the, the, that, uh, the, the ascendancy of the Americans, whatever. But Ibn Khaldun points out that things don't get better. They might go up but then they're, then they're going to go down. And, and that in fact, that idea of circularity is, is absolutely key to his worldview. And clearly we have made progress. We've made an extraordinary progress even in our own lifetimes. But I think um, if you stick with that idea of, of the Oxford historian describing the most successful culture as being hunter-gatherer, and then you think of, of his image of a path picked through history being a path picked through ruins, that it might be before long that the history we really want to read is not the one of the people who built monuments, but of the people who nurtured the gardens that still grow around them, the people who've maintained forests that haven't been cut down, the people that, because that will become the ultimate value symbol in it for us. It'll be what, what we've left on the planet rather than what we destroyed. There's another key characteristic of the nomad, 
which you explore deeply, which is a kind of pride in belonging. And, and then the Arabic word asibaya, this group consciousness and, and sense of collective identity. Is that something we've also neglected? I think we don't always see asabia when it works. I mean, I think, you know, classic bit of asabia would have been the the um, movement that coalesced around Donald Trump. Um, you know, I think in in our own time, that a classic example of people who suddenly felt here is some here is a voice that I can I can believe in, and I'll follow follow it. Um, with, you know, the idea of asabia is that um, you have a, a leader of, of a recognizable group who will come together and do something beyond their their expected abilities um, because of the dy- dynamics between the leader and and this group harmony that he he or she has created, and that's exactly what Trump did. I, mean, I don't think he expected for a minute that he, when he started that he was going to end up president, and suddenly, boom, there it was. But um, happily, Asabia has had more positive um, uh, outcomes in in the past. And Ibn Khaldun talks about this as having been the prime mover of um, movements coming out of nomadic cultures up until, it's really up until uh, the 16th, 17th century, when when being a strong a strong person on uh, able to ride a camel or a horse and good with a bow suddenly became irrelevant once there were sort of cannons and machine guns and things like that that they were facing but up until then there was this idea which which is what the basis of Ibn Khaldun's um thesis that people who live um a nomadic life are the what he calls in the first stage, they're the, the simplest and the cleanest and the clearest of people. They are the sort of people in the in in their in in our original state, and that uh, the other other end of that, which is um, the outcome of having built a nomad empire, is you have settled people because the nomad ruler will settle um, because empires need capitals, need cities, need a center, a settled center. Um, and inevitably, they live behind a wall in a palace, and therefore they're cut off from the people who they inspired, and they lose touch with, with um, what's being said around them, and also they lose control of the narrative in a way. But at that early stage where you're sitting around a fire um, talking about um, the stories that you always tell, and inevitably the stories that are told around campfire, everybody knows knows the story, they know how it begins and how it ends. Um, but in the retelling, they're slightly changed. And um, every now and again, someone comes along and recognizes what you can do with with uh, with, the, with these old stories and inspires people to get up and do something different. And for instance, this is what the Prophet Muhammad achieved with with the, with the first Muslim army that comes out of Arabia. The, I, I write about this description of, of um, the first encounter of the Arab Arab armies outside Arabia, where they bump into, they've gone to punish someone just across, just outside Arabia, and they bump into a major Byzantine army, completely unexpected and completely out of their league. You know, you've got properly trained Byzantine soldiers, properly armed. You've got these guys who've never fought a proper battle before. It's always been like a sort of local fist fight, but suddenly they're, they're into a proper pitch battle. And, and you know, and they they win. And, and suddenly everyone's talking about, who are these guys? Where, where are they come from? And, you know, and should we care about them? 
And then comes the message, you know, the, supposedly the, the prophet sent messages to the Persian emperor and to the Roman emperor, the Byzantine emperor, to say, submit to the new religion or your empire will fall. And he was right. They didn't submit, and the, the, he did, you know, the Arabs very quickly, within a generation, create this enormous empire that goes from the Atlantic Ocean deep into Central Asia and up into to the border, to the um, to the walls of Constantinople. I mean, extraordinary. And that's achieved by the, what Ibn Khaldun calls this nomadic energy, just boom, this explosion of health, you know, um, compressed and then directed by Asabiya, by this group feeling and directed by the leader. And so Ibn Khaldun talks about how this happens again and again through history. And, it, and in a way, although you know, it, it's shaped by community, but today our communities are formed in a completely different way. We don't sit around campfires. We sit around televisions and computer screens and mobile phones. And in a way that I that is the same thing, but we're not coming out of the desert and we're not people in our first state. We don't have the purity that Ibn Khaldun regarded as an essential element for the creation of a good new movement. Um, instead, we are the more than 50% of us who live in cities are what he called the worst of people the the you know because we're because cities corrupt um and they you know they they lead us into sin they make us weak because we're not engaged in physical in physical labor anymore and we're not engaged with the natural world anymore and so we've lost touch with with our with our origins and um but still i do think asabia is still being being played around us as we speak. A thousand years ago or further back, um, they wanted to create this from your book about how it would be for someone to leave their city and, and head perhaps east as an emissary or a trader. You wrote, it was a time when to move was to risk attack or infection by deadly disease. When travel was both difficult and dangerous, most people ventured no further than their nearest market or town centre. So when you, you know, you're sitting in front of, your laptop or sitting on the top of a mountain and imagining how it might be to to you know put your backpack on or equivalent and and head off at that period of time what kind of emotions did you conjure it's very hard for us to um recreate travel in another time because travel for us become has become so predictable in so many ways you know we have the internet we have you know, we, we have guidebooks, we have all sorts of things. We have a mobile phone, so we're never out of touch. And and part of me yearns for that time to have been able to travel in that time when you went and that was it, you know, and maybe you were going to come back and maybe you wouldn't. You would see wonderful things, whatever happened, because you wouldn't be able to anticipate as we anticipate now, you know, with this sort of, I've just come back from two weeks in Egypt. I knew exactly what was going to happen. And there are there are always surprises, but not of the magnitude of, of what they would have been if I'd traveled 200 years ago, because it would have taken me a, a year rather than two weeks to go to Egypt and back and, and travel up the Nile. And, and it's, so, it's, so, it's such a joyful experience to try and imagine that other way from long ago. Um, and there are very few places in the world now where you can do that, where you could, where you have to do that, where getting off, off grid, going beyond the mobile phone, beyond satellite phones, beyond anything you've ever seen or, or heard. But I enjoy that mental process. And you know, we how cheated we are by all these things of progress that allow us 
allow us just, to, as I say, to jet in and to have seen it all before because we've we've Googled it or we've seen the you know the program on whichever whichever channel it is, and we followed, we read someone's book, <laughs> or and so that to be able to just sit down and, and close your eyes and and dream away, I, that's that's part of the joy of writing for me. Another quote I wanted to pull out of your book was a quote from the fourth century Roman historian Ammianus, writing this. None of their, that is the nomads, offspring, when asked, can tell you where he comes from, since he was conceived in one place, born far from there, and brought up still further away. Of course, he's, he's writing <laughs> in a disparaging way. I, I, I wonder how that would have been read then, and, and how is that different now? Well, uh, two things. Firstly, I, I had a guy come to my house today of um, Jamaican origin, and and he and he, I live in you know I'm in London where well, that's where I'm speaking to you from. And he said, "So where are you from?" I said, uh, "I'm I was born in London. I'm a Londoner." He said, "No, but where are you from originally?" I said, "I'm a Londoner. This is where I was born." He, and he said, "No, but before that." And and I said, "Is it my face?" <laughs> and he said, "Yes, it's your face, your manner." Your, your accent is not is not English. So this thing about where do you come from? I mean, even if you do, even if I, you know where you're born, in you still get asked these questions. But in 2010, I did a, a trek in the Sinai Desert um, on camels, just with one guy, and 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 he was on on his camel, I was on mine, and we we were far into the desert, and and he just quite offhand says, points to a cave and says, that's where I was born. And, and I said, why were you born there? And he said, well, my parents were, were herders and, you know, they were, they were nomads. They were moving, moving across this area. And my mother was pregnant. And that's where I came out in that cave. She went to the cave, she gave birth and, and then they, then they moved on. So that, you know, it's easy, but uh, Ammianus would have the Roman historian would have been would have found that awful, you know. He, and it and as you say, he everything he writes is is riddled with prejudice, um, as though uh, being born in my position to be able to say I come from London is any guarantee of 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 something. It's not anymore, and I don't even think it was in his time. Um, we're all from somewhere, and we're all going somewhere else. Um, I, I'm, I'm struck by when we use the word nomad today in kind of contemporary speech, we, we often prefix it with the word digital and the digital nomad who's carrying his backpack to Lisbon and, um, and then to Bali and, or Bitha. But they're, they're often solitary or, or a pair, a small group possibly at most, certainly not significant in size. Does that go against some of the key characteristics of historical nomadism that because of you know the sense of a belonging and collective support and or, or actually do they accomplish that online with with intermittent and random and sporadic friendship i i've been um criticized for writing about this in, in nomads because i do mention you know that this word sort of also covers digital nomads and uh, and i quote quoted uh, bruce chatwin's traveling salesman um who was a, a an englishman who spent his life traveling around with a suitcase he was selling things i can't remember what maybe typewriters or something into in, around various countries in, on the African continent. And his base was uh, this sort of lockup in London where he had this one box which contained his 
and and Chatwin called him a nomad. And so I, I cited that. And I do cite digital nomads as well, um, as you know, falling into this. But it's it there are still people, many, many millions of them, who are still living traditional nomadic lives. And I I don't think you can sort of say that these are the same thing, digital nomad and and people who are moving around with herds. Um, I open and close the book with a description of Bakhtiari in Iran up in the Zagros Mountains. Now, these are people who, who claim, you know, that their origins go back to the dawn of time and that certainly a, a thousand, maybe 2000 years they can claim on that patch of land. And um, they are still living, ex- you know, the same way they've always lived. They move their flocks up and down. Um, there was a great film made about them in the 1920s by the filmmaker who went on to make the original King Kong. And so we know what, what their 1920s um, movement looked like. It was it was 50,000 people moving half a million animals from the uh, Mesopotamian plain down near the Iraqi border across a river, which then had no bridge. So they literally threw all the animals in. These are goats and and sheep and horses and hope that they're going to swim to the other side. They obviously lose some because the, the river's quite fast with melt water coming down off the mountains. And then they they jump in on inflated, inflated animal skins and hope that they'll get across as well. And then they've got to climb up this huge, you know, 4,000 whatever meter mountain um, to get to their summer pasture. Those people are still doing the same thing. They're still wintering down on the Mesopotamian plain and summering up in the Zagros mountains. But many of them are moving their flocks and everything else by huge truck. Um, they, some of them have solar panels, some of them have car batteries that allow them to, to run either a television, computer, charge their mobile phones and have a fridge perhaps. I don't think this makes them any less nomadic than than the way they lived before. They're still moving between those two places. They still understand their place. They still have that same sense of, of community. So they all do still sit around their fires and they do still tell their stories and they do still know exactly who they are. And that is clearly not the same as somebody. And also they are entirely dependent on on, and they therefore still have that same nomadic thinking I was talking about. Uh, they're dependent on the climate and the natural world because they're actually moving in, in search of, of uh, fodder for their flocks. It is obviously, as you said, a sort of a position of privilege. But I think maybe one day being a herder in the Zagros Mountains might look like a position of privilege as well. It's just a matter of perspective. I, I, I read um, that you were given access to an unpublished book of Bruce Chapman's about nomads, um, The Nomadic Alternative. is I don't know if that, I guess that's the working title. What joy, Anthony. <laughs> um, can you well, see, as a Chapman, a huge Chapman fan, can you tell me? Um, no, what disappointment as well. I mean, imagine an unpublished Bruce Chapman. I, I'm also a, a great fan of Bruce Chapman's and Songlines was absolutely seminal in in shaping my my view of, of the world. And obviously, you know, part of my thinking about this book as well, his his book about um, moving with Aborigines. And I, um, so when I realized that this, there was this manuscript, I mean, I'd heard of it, but I, that it was actually around and, and 
and he completed it. So this is a book. This was the first book that he was commissioned to write. Uh, he had been a trader with one of the big London auction houses, and an an expert there. And and the way he des- Chatwin describes it, he was started losing his eyesight, and his optician told him to go and stretch his eyes on big landscapes. So he went to Sudan and decided he was never going back, and uh, and and fell for fell for nomads in a big way. But um, there's with Chatwin, there's always lots of romanticizing in in the pro- process. But he wrote a, a letter to via an, an agent to Tom Mashler, who was sort of the great publisher in London at the time, the head of Jonathan Cape, was pitching a book, The Nomadic Alternative, it was called. And he'd never written anything before. It was, a compl- you know, what a bluff. And, and it was commissioned. And, uh, and he traveled lots and he did an immense amount of research and he wrote it and, uh, and well, Elizabeth Chapman, his wife, said, the longer it went on, the worse I knew it was going to be. <laughs> and it went on, he went on for years, sort of just getting gloomier and gloomier and saying, I better go and travel somewhere else and get some more material. And, and so in the end, what he wrote was um, a se- whole series of long essays, which, um, which have none of the joy of his later writing. There's, there's some of the ideas are there, but none of the, none of the lightness, none of the playfulness. It's, and it's a classic first book that he shoved everything he knows in one way or another. And it's, so it's a really clunky read. And it doesn't really stand up as an argument either. And uh, that, that, you know, that we've got to keep on moving, man, is more or less the... He, 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 at the same time, he wrote an article for Vogue called It's a Nomad, 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 Nomad World. And that sort of lays out the thesis. Well, and, and anyway, some of it some of it then appeared in the notebook section of Songlines. He filleted bits out of, of nomadic alternative to use in that. Good to know. So I've read a bit of it without even knowing. And I think that what might be timeless actually is the title, because the nomadic alternative could be exactly what we're yes. putting ourselves into. Exactly. Volume, volume two for me. I'll plagiarise it. I'll plagiarise his title. Exactly. Manifesto for living them no matter Exactly. Well, actually, that wasn't what my last question was going to be, Anthony, is, is what's next? Uh, it is. Yeah, there is something else. I'm right. I've gone back to Egypt, uh, which I don't seem to be able to get away from. And uh, I, I don't know what the whole well, they, they, in Egypt, they say when you drunk from the water of the Nile, you always return. Um, and I've been going back there. Yeah, most of my adult life. So uh, it's just but it's, it's also because Egypt is the archetype for the settled civilization, you know, and it just did it long better and longer than anywhere else on earth you know 3000 years of recorded ancient history and then 2000 years since then and uh, but I, so i'm writing a i've decided to write a book about um how egypt has shaped us particularly the western world um but but also surprisingly some of the east and um you know we in in europe we pride ourselves on being the heirs of ancient Greece and Rome. And, but as Napoleon's great scholar, Baron Dominique Vivant-Dunon pointed out when he got up the Nile, he said, at this point, I realized the Greeks had invented nothing. It all came from Egypt. And, you know, whether you think of your Roman villa, which is Egyptian, whether you think of your Ten Commandments, they're Egyptian, whether you, I mean, whether you think of your Greek philosophy, it came out of Egypt, whether astronomy, mathematics, the decimal points of the Egyptian, Egyptians had 10 days to their week, anything, it all 
started in Egypt. And if it didn't originate in Egypt, they absorbed it and processed it for so long that it, it became Egyptian and it gets funneled into, in, into our world through ancient, ancient Greece and Rome. But it's just, Egyptologists know this, but it's not, there isn't a book about it. So I thought I would do that. Well, we look forward to reading that. I'd love you to come back on and see when it's out. And thank you very much for joining me on The Wandering Book Collector. Thanks, Michelle. It's been a pleasure. And my thanks to the support of this podcast, Abercrombie & Kent. Goodbye.